You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Paul Bellini, and I make funny things for a living. Comedy writer Paul Bellini is a three-time Emmy nominee for his work on Kids in the Hall, and a three-time Gemini winner for his work on This Hour Has 22 Minutes. He's a prolific film director, a comedy writing teacher, and one half of the 80s gay punk band Mouth Congress. Suffice it to say, this man knows funny. Here's my chat with Paul Bellini. Who are you and what do you make for a living? My name is Paul Bellini. I'm a 60-year-old comedy writer living in Toronto. Um, I was a writer on the Kids in the Hall show starting in 1990. I did that for five or six years. And then I went on to write uh, This Hour's 22 Minutes for four years. Um, Lots of other TV shows that have come and gone so fast you've never heard of them. Um, (laughs) But that's what happens, right, in the business. Um, I also wrote magazine articles. I was a a columnist at a magazine called Fab for 11 years. Um, And now I don't get paid so much for writing because I've sort of become a comedy writing instructor at various schools around town. Uh, So um, my active career is a little over in terms of the professional part of it. That said, I still make things constantly. I I still write all the time. I just don't get it produced. That's just like people at the beginning of their career. Yeah. They write all the time and they don't get anything produced. Well, (laughs) because I think if you do it for the love of it, then ultimately it doesn't matter if it earns you money. If there's some way that you can still pay your rent and cover your expenses um, and you're driven to do this, you're just going to do it anyway. Um, And writing is something that always calmed me down. I think that, For me, it was the most powerful of any kind of drug because it regulates my craziness. It gives me a chance to process my thoughts, to express myself in a way that is um, very calculated but specific. So I like it for a lot of reasons. I I always did. I always thought it was the funnest thing you could do. And you always did that, even as a kid, you were always writing? Yeah, you know... uh, when you asked me to do this, I, I had a, an early memory. I remember my uncle Fred used to babysit me when I was seven, eight years old. And he'd come over. He was only 10 years older, seven years older than me. And he, uh, Freddie wanted to watch the hockey game, and I was not interested in sports. So one day he brought over a bunch of full scap paper and a box of pencil crayons, and he said, make a magazine. And I <laughs> sat there for three hours creating the cover, the ads, the columns, the photos. I literally made a magazine and then I folded it in half and I presented it to him at the end. You know, he goes, this is very good and all that stuff. Look what you did. But uh, I think he realized, oh God, it's easy to babysit this kid because all he <laughs> was make junk. I wish I still had to make a bunch of crap. Just make crap. And, and the pleasure of creating and, and, saying, you know, look what I did, that sort of thing. It's always been there from then. Did you always know you were going to go professional with all of your creative endeavors? Was that always the drive through high school and then into Well, my big ambition as a kid was to escape Timmins because I grew up in a small mining town. It was about twenty-five to 30,000 people. It was, I always like to say, 400 miles north of sophistication. Um, it literally is 440 miles north of Toronto. And um, 
it's a nice place, maybe not so much anymore, but when I was growing up, I'm very fond of, I have a lot of fond memories of it, but I also knew I needed access to the city, to big libraries, to movie theaters, to events. I needed to be in the action. So I had to get to Toronto. So most of my young life was spent calculating my escape. <laughs> and did you think creativity and writing was going to be your savior? I did by my mid-high school years, because by then I was involved in yearbook and theater arts. We used to put on a big musical every year. Um, and I was also on grad committee. I was like uh, doing a million things, studying photography. Uh, I was aware of old movies um, and foreign films at the time. So I was very sophisticated in my tastes. Um, so all of this made me think, yeah, maybe a career in the arts is possible. Originally, I thought journalism because it sounded like it paid well or paid something. But then I started to think, I'm just going to go to film school. And mostly for the reason is that it doesn't exist north of Toronto. There was no institute of higher learning north of Toronto that taught film production. So I chose <laughs> York University and I made this big announcement. And I was a scholarship baby, right? I had uh, scholarships and stuff. Uh, so I announced that I was going to be studying film in Toronto. And everyone went, oh, wonderful. <laughs> then you come back, television in Timmins. Like, that's what you were supposed to do. Return to Timmins with your acquired knowledge and skills. <laughs> but, you know, I was super lucky because one of the first people I met at university was Scott Thompson, who was just completely unhinged, as he is now. <laughs> it's not a surprise to either of us. We know him. Uh, he was completely unhinged. Um, but he had the same crazy desire to work as I did. And that's one thing he and I have always shared. We are absolutely driven to create. It's like, again, I think for him, it's the only thing that pacifies him. Not to speak for another person, but I think that it, it, it centers us to make things. You guys met right out of the gates, and did you immediately start making stuff together? Well, we also, one of our best friends was a guy named Brian Hiltz, who was actually a very talented filmmaker and a musician. And Brian would cast us in little Super 8 films and then involve us in his little rock and roll shows. So there was always a performance aspect, and Super 8 was what we shot at the time. And also, Brian was the editor of the um, college newspaper, The Van Du. So he brought us into that. So all of a sudden, you know, here we are in a position where we were literally writing comedy for a student newspaper, which didn't go over well with everybody else, but we loved it. <laughs> Students took themselves very seriously back then as well. Well, we weren't interested in reporting news. We just wanted, <laughs> like, we did a feature on the lunch lady, you know. <laughs> so we had our own take on things, right? So there you were, you were at York. You met Scott. What were you guys doing scholastically? Like, were you actually taking your scholastics seriously? Well, I was a film production student, but I was notoriously inept at handling the camera, the sound equipment, the light meter, even the clapboard. So my footage came back. And, you know, you're paying $30 for a three-minute roll of Super 8 film at the time. My footage would come back and it would look like, uh, like a, a brown soup, just awful. Um, so it was obvious that I had no production talent whatsoever. And uh, I was failing at the end of second year. And I was advised to switch into film studies. 
Now, I was really good at watching movies. I still am. <laughs> and film studies is, of course, you attend lectures and they talk about, you know, Agnes Varda. And then they show one of her movies and then you're supposed to write a paper. Like, I think we wrote two or three papers the whole year. Um, my papers always got A's, A pluses. I mean, I was really good. I First of all, I jumped into the research. I would watch the movies, do all the reading, try to come up with my own ideas. I really had a knack for it. So even though I entered film production, which was a Bachelor of Fine Arts, I didn't get that. I got a, a Bachelor of Arts in film studies. Um, and I was fine with that. But it's a useless degree unless you're going to go into some kind of festival programming or write for a film magazine or teach film. And I couldn't figure out how to do any of those things. <laughs> so what happened after school then? Like, did you, you finished off. How did you wind up going comedy route? Well, for the first couple of years, you just take any job. I mean, I ran a, um, they used to have these kiosks for photography called Suter Studios. You could drop off your film and 24 hours later, the prints come back. Because um, we did everything with couriers, rush, rush. So that was their claim to fame, 24 hour service. And you get a second set of prints for free. Um, and mine was in the Christie subway station. So I would go there every day. And I did this for about five or six months. Um, and all my friends would come and visit me. And we'd just like, you know, just talk and make fun and laugh. Like I barely did any work. Then I became an office temp, which I did for a long time because I'm a very fast and accurate typist. So I was good for office work. Mm -hmm. Following Scott's career, though, like he started off doing security work. Right. But he still had ambitions to be an actor, even though he actually failed uh, the, the, I think he graduated from university, but I don't think he, it, it was in theater performance. Might have been some, might have been theater studies like me. Uh, <laughs> but he was ushered he, he was towards there, it. Yeah, ushered towards the door. And um, he joined a comedy troupe um, called the Love Cats. They were an improv group. They would play a theater, uh, uh, the Harbor Front, every. Wednesday night. And I got caught up in the excitement. And that's where he met the other two, Bruce and Mark from Calgary and uh, Dave and Kevin were in Toronto with Luch Casimiri was uh, another one of them. And Mark put together this little super troupe. So starting in early 1985, I'd already been at a university for two and a half years of doing these shitty jobs and stuff. All of a sudden, um, the comedy thing kicks in. And I was instantly attracted to it because the kids in the hall, say what you will, they were five very bright, funny guys. They mm -hmm. were interesting to talk to and to be with and super creative people. Um, and I liked it because I'd never seen anything like this before. Um, you know, you hang around with rock bands. It's great. Everybody can play an instrument, but you know how dumb some musicians are. You can't <laughs> hopeless to talk to if you're not jamming you are not doing anything right <laughs> but with comedians the engagement is constant and their observations are, are constant so they're really interesting people like to to talk about politics and what's uh, what's in, on tv the night before and uh weird habits your parents have like all, everything comes into play so i immediately really liked these guys and i ingratiated myself but not as a performer. That's what Scott did. And Scott's a natural performer. He needs that. I'm very awkward on stage. I've done it lots, but I'm not that good. 
but I found other ways to fit in, usually uh, doing the posters or working the door or running the soundboard and mostly videotaping and archiving their shows, which everyone at the time thought I was insane. But <laughs> later years proved to be, you know, after they became famous, was was quite a good idea because uh, I have documented most of their early years. Um, and you can see their chemistry was instant. It was not something they even worked at very hard. It just sort of came. Super lucky guys, really. Um, and super lucky for me, because even at the lowest level, I'm thinking, this could be something one day. You know, you never know. Because like, also, all your friends have rock bands, and they're all going, well, uh, we're just recording a hit single, and oh, we're going to open for the for uh, so-and-so, uh, for, you know, with those Mo Burks band, Pursuit of Happiness, we're opening for them. So it's all these, you know, so your rock band friends, you think they might break open too. There's always that possibility. Then you got actor friends who are going, oh, I just auditioned for Canadian Stage and I've got a Heinz commercial. So when you're that old, everything feels like it's moving forward. And it, it all feels like anybody could be successful. And the kids in the hall weren't instantly successful. They did shows from 1985 to about 1987, two, two years before there was serious notice and the notice that came from like Diane Pauly and Pam Thomas and, um, and later on from Perry Roseman. So all these people started to take interest in them before Lauren, uh, Lauren Michaels did. And that was exciting. But like I said, I also, all my rock band friends are going, Oh, we're touring. and we're You know, so you don't know what's going to break, but being with the comedy guys felt more real to me. It felt more natural because uh, although I never think of myself as a comedian, I, I am a witty person. I do get a joke. I really understand joke construction. Um, and it's kind of hard for me now to write without wanting to put in a good joke every now and then. When it comes to you, you don't want to waste it. You know what I mean? Um, but I still don't really think of myself as a comedian. I, I've always noticed working with you that it's, it's not even just that you have something to say, but you have something to add always so it's it's you know and and in seeing you and scott working together in in, in so many different uh settings it's always interesting that that it's 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 a pylon it's it, scott's got something you've got something on top of it he's got something you've got something to add and and it's just sort of this this one on top of thing it, it, it's a very brotherly thing i find it's a, a creative brotherhood interesting because sometimes that's a competitive aspect to it in that well, sure like a brother laugh yeah, like but um, but I always have always always felt that the final product is the only thing that ultimately matters. That what you put into the making of it, what's important to you, but the only thing that really matters to its audience is the final product. So that's got to be great. It's every you've got to put all your good stuff into that final product. The show must come first. And that's always my advice to young people. What's your advice in show business? The show has to come first, not you. Yeah, and that's something that we've always, you know, you and I have worked together along with my brother, Josh, and and uh, sometimes with Scott as well. And that that sort of um, MO has always been there. That's something that we always felt we wanted to get from you guys, whether or not we, we wanted to develop our own voices and develop our own uh, um, things to say. But one of the things we always took from yourself and from the kids was that the show has to be excellent. It can be weird, it can be demented, it can be strange, it can be offensive, but it has to be excellent. And that's yeah. the thing that you have to be hard on, is be hard on the work, 
try not to be hard on each other, but if you have to be to get good work, you're hard on each other. But you know what I think always was important to note was the lack of diva attitudes because no one of the kids in the hall ever became super famous, like a Chevy Chase or a Bill Murray famous. Uh, they all did well, but none of them went so far. Well, Foley came close because he anchored a sitcom and a right. your cartoon franchise. But all the same, that it, that that imbalance in the chemistry never happened, which I think is a really important thing to know. Canada's good for that. We keep our famous people in check. We don't let them get too much, not too much money, not too much fame. We keep them working. Keeps their heads from getting so big that they don't, they can't fit through the door. <laughs> because we've seen that. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Going back to, you know, whether it's you and Scott in the early days or whether it's you and the rest of the kids coming up with ideas and Luch, where are these ideas coming from? Where do you get inspiration from? Well... The interesting thing when we started writing comedy was that it, it seemed to come from several different sources. One thing was Bruce McCullough made it very clear he did not want parody material. So we weren't allowed to do like a Star Trek parody or a commercial parody. Um, and it was always advised to pick your topics. So like someone like Bruce, he likes white collar work and suburbs. Those are the two <laughs> things that he seems to focus in on. Um, I think with someone like Kevin, it's about a, a kind of a um, a status thing because he often feels like he's lower in status than other people. And you know what I mean? Um, with me and Scott, a lot of it was just being gay and coming out and fighting AIDS and discrimination, but finding a funny way to do it, which is really hard because some of that material is so heavy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the creation of Buddy Cole, our signature character, was all about finding a delicate voice for harsh realities because we wanted him to say things that Scott couldn't say without being criticized. So we created this character to, and gave him voice, as they say, give voice. And, and, and it's exactly what, that was his purpose, to lessen the blow and to give it a, a funny little, uh, a little twinkle, you know? Literally and figuratively. Literally, yeah. yeah. Well, and it, that's that's one of the most interesting things about Buddy was that he was a creation from a long time ago who has maintained relevance because he's exactly that. He's he's the person who can say absolutely anything. You he's know, the part of Scott that gets to say whatever the hell he wants, and it's it's dampened. the The harshness is dampened by the fact that it's funny, and yet it's very biting. It's very quick, and it's very direct. The creation of Buddy is really interesting in terms of the theme of your podcast. So um, my sister's boyfriend at the time, Rob Rowett, who was a guitar player in Mouth Congress, had a really nice giant Panasonic camera. It was a big shoulder mount. And then the VHS tapes were on a saddlebag that you wore in your hip. I mean, it just weighed <laughs> pounds. Um, and he would leave it at the house and he allowed me to use it. So uh, one day Scott and I took it out and started videotaping in my room, just letting Scott improvise, look into the camera and do some improv stuff. And a couple of nights earlier, we had been at a party at Brian Hill's place and met a guy named Carl, Carl Beauchamp, who's no longer with us. He was a, an attractive, witty French Canadian boy, but with a really um, um, saucy type of humor, um, really condescending, to be honest, a gay snob. And uh, for some reason we absorbed 
that personality thing. And the next day, so as we're doing this little improv, I noticed Scott is actually sort of doing this voice that sounds like Carl. And, and at first, Buddy Cole was a vampire who has been around for 900 years and had many lovers <laughs> in Venice and all this shit. So it was just all over the place. But when we rewatched it, because it was all on videotape, we realized there's a very interesting character here. And he was, he was delicate and wounded at first. And the second time we did it, because we shot it outdoors this time, Scott had to raise his voice. He had to project more. And there was strength coming out of him instead of this sheepishness, right? He had already abandoned the vampire stuff, but he kept all the Arab lovers and all that nonsense. <laughs> and so it was all about, you know, meeting Serge and all this stuff. All the stuff that went into the first monologue basically was improvised on the porch of the house where I live. And it goes to show you, you sort of sometimes start exploring. And it's like, I think, building a statue and that you chip away until you get to the beautiful statue somewhere inside that marble block, right? And that's what a lot of what we're doing is just like in the dark, like just shooting in the dark, seeing what would happen and where it was taking us. And sometimes a character leads you. You set out writing one thing or doing one thing and you find the character is pulling you in a different direction. And it's a very strange thing that I've never really been able to quite understand with the creative process, how, how a fictional thing in your subconscious actually takes on a will of its own and forces the writer or the actor to go in a certain direction without knowing why. And I think that was exactly what happened with Buddy Cole. Yeah, I mean, there's times I've heard you and Scott talking about Buddy as though he's just in the other room. I mean, yeah. he'd never do that. And, you know, we're going to go out next week and go, you know, do something with Buddy. Like, it, it, it's, it's he's become this human that is part of your lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, Buddy's written books and Buddy's gone on tour. I mean, even he, Thompson's last tour was as Buddy. I mean, yeah. he comes out as Buddy, he performs as Buddy, he gets off as Buddy. He may do a take a bow as Scott, but it's a fascinating thing how something like that can take on a life of its own. And it, it, it's, again, you don't always have to be comfortable with Buddy. Buddy's pretty much there to say the uncomfortable things and do the uncomfortable things. Yeah. But he invites you to enjoy that awkwardness right along with him. But that's an act of creation that is done in tandem. And uh, quite honestly, had Scott and I been working alone, I'm not sure either of us would have come up with that character or understood his function. It was very much of a mutual thing. Um, I mean, it's, he still did most of the work, let's be honest. He was performing it and doing a lot of the writing. But I was there to kind of make all the right suggestions, I think, and to steer it in a certain way and to sort of focus on certain things, you know what I mean? What's it like to work with a partner that closely where you're invested, you're a part of it, you're contributing, and yet there's a point at which, as you're saying, Scott takes those things and either does them on stage or doesn't, does them on camera or doesn't, uh, writes in that direction or pushes it in this direction. How, how does that work between the two of you, knowing that you've got influence and, and, and activity up into a point, and then you kind of almost have to take a step back and see, see what comes of it? As comedy writers, it's a very simple process. It's making the other person laugh because the laugh is the seal of approval. It's the check mark. So I might come up with 30 ideas in a session, but he only laughs at one of them. That's the one that's going to stay 
and then find its way into the character or into the monologue or into the script. And it works both ways because he's pitching stuff at me. And when I do my face, you know, <laughs> that, that I don't like it face, he knows he can't pursue it. Whereas if I'm laughing my head off, he knows go in that direction. So, and, and, and it's something that you cannot calculate or there's no, um, there's no, uh, control. It just has to happen. Yeah, that's the essence of a, of a nice creative partnership. Uh, my brother and I, similarly, at times when he was taking much more of the creative uh, uh, lead and at times when I was uh, being a lot more of the sounding board, you know, I, I remember one day he came to me and, um, and he had like 50 ideas and a shocking amount of them were good. But one of them was excellent, and it was the one that he was least excited about and threw away and was just buried in the list of things that he was, you know, really trying to sell me on. But there was this one that just popped out. I said, you know, this one's good, this one's good, and this one's good. But I can't, you said one line about this one idea, this one thing. And, he, and he's like, that? And I was like, yeah, I, really, I think you got something there. I don't know what it is. And then he took it and just went with it, to his credit. And he wrote an excellent script off of it, and we've had lots of good uh, traction on it. And it's that kind of a thing where sometimes the curation, the sounding board, being that other person, that's just as important, or else you can wind up going down 50 different roads that are good, but maybe not great. Well, the thing with comedy writing, and I tell my, all my students this, is that the only real teacher is an audience. I can give you advice, I can make suggestions, I can do this and that, but when you put it in front of an audience and they hate it, it ain't working. And if they're loving it, it's working. It's a very simple thing. Audiences are not invested in your future or your failure, right? All they want is to just be entertained for their money. They're sitting in the room, do something. And, and so because they have no agenda other than to enjoy themselves, it's the purest form of learning. When you're just writing in a room by yourself, how do you know? I guess you start with what you like, and then you got to put it in front of someone else. I try and make myself laugh, but it doesn't always work. You it's know? like tickling yourself; it doesn't actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying earlier that this, you know, that you are long since past actively working and stuff. But I, I'm going to challenge that because you have recently put out a, a movie, a feature film, and it's based on a band that you and Scott were in. 25 years ago yeah you're working all the time you're still making new stuff what's motivating you to continue to make this stuff I, I think it's that weird legacy thing you just think about what do i leave after i'm gone and and i, I want to leave a lot of stuff to continue to entertain people that that's it i guess that's it it's as simple as that well tell me about mouth congress i mean what is this thing mouth congress was like a, a, it's like a work project Right. <laughs> in that I wanted to start a band without knowing how to play an instrument. Right? And I'm no singer, so I can't do that either. I rented a, a beatbox from Long and McQuaid back in 1984. They were very primitive. They did about four different beats, like salsa and merengue. Just awful stuff. Like a Casio keyboard. Yeah, I think they went by them with Casio. It was just ridiculous. And uh, I put it in the basement, hooked it up to an old guitar amp, um, like I said, Rob Rowett was, was there plunking away on guitar and Scott came over and the two of us started coming up with song ideas. And I remember our first session, we came up with like, you know, 30 songs. They're all a minute long and most of them are obscene. But that's, you know, we, we knew we were onto something right away. 
And then a year later, we started uh, we started performing live, and that really stepped it up because all of a sudden now we had to learn songs and create structures, and and find a show to go with them, you know, um, and that becomes a whole other thing. This went on for about the better part of 10 years, maybe six, seven years. But, you know, finally Kids in the Hall came along. And once you start working on a TV show, you don't have time for rock bands. So I buried it all. And over the years, I've always enjoyed those tapes, uh, the videotapes, the audio tapes. And I said to Scott one day, I said, we should do a documentary because no one's going to make it for us. We'll just do it ourselves. We started in 2011. It took that long to get to where we were. <laughs> But I think, you know, your brother, Josh, was the one who gave us the idea. He goes, if you're going to do a documentary, it should be about you guys having a reunion show. Right. And that was the magic idea, because it's one thing to just look back on your crazy archives and another to give it a framework where you care about those archives because of the, this framework. And of course, it made for a very fun little movie. And it's really brisk you know i just watched it again a few nights ago my partner george and i watched it i laughed all the way through it it's an hour and seven minutes long and it's relentless <laughs> so i'm very proud of it we're just trying to find a way to release it every film festival it was in was canceled because of covid 19. um our tiff screening was canceled because of covid 19. i mean just we lost every opportunity because yeah. of this virus so uh, we're still sitting here with something that was shot in 2016, uh, finally completed in 2019, and now just sitting on a shelf waiting. So it's really sad because I hate doing business. I'd rather make another movie than have to do any business. So as somebody that, that hates doing the business, how do you deal with doing the business? Like, how has this worked for you over the years? Not very well. I'm really bad at promoting my stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of lose interest. After I'm done making something, you know, I wrote a novel. Uh, it took me 10 years to write. I still haven't published it. I sent it out to a bunch of people. There was no interest. Someone said, oh, self-publish. I went, that's a great idea, but I haven't done it. Like, I'm just lazy shit. This is one of those things that you hear time and again. Do you have to make the work, but you have to promote the work. You have to distribute the work. You have to do everything now. I mean, yes, we have the means by which to do a lot of this stuff through social media and the Amazons and all that kind of stuff. But man, he's got the time and energy. It's, it's bloody work and it's hard. You got to be good at it. It was always the case. You know, I, I love, uh, I read a book about Oscar Michaud, who was uh, the first big black filmmaker in the 1920s. And he made all these movies and he would literally take the print and drive all around that Bible Belt area, rent a church basement and show it. And that's how he would make money and then go to the next location with a car full of money. You know, <laughs> that was the only way to do it was to actually physically show it himself. Um, I'm not going to do that with mouth Congress. I'm just way too lazy. <laughs> we got this internet thing now. Then maybe that'll work. That's true. Okay. So you say, you're saying that you're, you're no good at the at, at promotion. You're no good at the business stuff, but yeah. you had a lot of success. I mean, you went from kids in the hall to this hour is 22 minutes teach you teach people how to do this bloody thing hell you have emmy nominations gemini nominations i mean obviously you know what you're doing not really <laughs> i i had a good agent uh when i had an active television career um but no i mean i just usually lucked into things let's be honest uh the reason i've done anything 
is usually can trace back to my friendship with Scott and, and to an extent, and to someone like Brian Hiltz as well. And then later with Josh, like I've had good collaborators. And when the work succeeds, it's because we both want to put it forward and figure out a way how. But look how many scripts Josh and I wrote, probably about 10 features, and how many television pitches. Uh, and the only one that happened was Locker Room, right? So, you know, you, you, you do a lot of work for nothing in this business. And it's hard because when you're creating something, you put 100% of yourself into it. You believe in it. And then you try and make other people believe in it and invest money into the making of it. And that's where it all falls apart. Um, and that's where you start getting things like notes from broadcasters. You know, we did a Buddy Cole cartoon. And one of the broadcasters went, we love it, except for Buddy Cole. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> what do you do? What am I? Like, we didn't know how to, you don't know how to proceed. What are they suggesting? We get rid of our protagonist, the reason we started it just it's so crazy so honestly i don't know i would suggest get a good manager or get a good agent take every opportunity try not to alienate anyone and pray for the best because it's like scratch and win lottery tickets sometimes you're lucky most times you're not let's talk about life in general you said you give 100 percent to yourself when you're on a show do you give zero percent of yourself to stuff when you're not how do you find a balance there? I'm not even sure what to say in terms of a balance because it's easy to be consumed by your creations. Um, they take a lot of time and energy. You know, I have, a, I have a stable relationship and a nice apartment. And, you know, I have pursuits. I like to cook. I like to ride my bike. You know, there's things I enjoy that, that don't involve, although cooking is an act of creation. But, um no, mostly I'm just planning the next thing. And I try not to spend money on my projects. Like I discovered a couple of years ago, I could shoot films on my cell phone because everybody's cell phone is a magnificent camera. The world is full of magnificent cameras now, like never before. We haven't even understood that potential. Everybody's got these amazing cameras. So I shot like four feature films. And the reason I wanted to do features was because I thought, what's the point of making short films? No one gives a shit. But if you make a feature, <laughs> even if no one's ever watched it, they go, you made four movies, each one lasted about an hour 20. Yeah. And, you know, I'd hire my, my former students. I'd ask them, do you want a part in this? And they all want to work because it's fun. So I was able to make these movies with zero dollars. And then I cut them myself. And then, you know, uh, we showed them at um, this little video store last year, uh, Eyesore Cinema. And it was great fun, you know, to, to put them on a big screen, nice audio and everything. But that's it. That's as far as it goes. I can't get them into festivals. I can't. I don't want to put them in online. Why not online? I'm curious. Well, you know, I have a YouTube channel and some of the stuff on it has like 30 views. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... and Again, I don't know how to promote it. I don't, I can't, I don't know how Lily Singh does it and gets 7 million subscribers. <laughs> I get 30 views, you know, and that's over 20, uh, that's over four years. Um, I, I don't know. I just don't, I've never known how to promote stuff. Yeah, there's definitely an art to it and you have to want to do it. There's no question about it. You have to be, you have to think of your project as, as making it as one part of it, promoting it as the other part of it. Yeah. 
And which means you have to really enjoy being online and devoting yourself to you know, generating that type of interest. My point is the less money you spend, the less pressure to have it succeed. And if I'm spending one or 200 bucks to make my little cell phone features, I don't care if I never make that money back. That's what I would probably spend on drinks <laughs> with the cast. You know what I mean? So um, it's fine. It's when you start, and, and we all know people like this who spent like three, $400,000 of credit debt to make their own feature. I don't want to name names, but several of my friends have done this. And they put them in festivals and blah, 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 but they still can't sell the damn thing. And what do you do? You spend the rest of your life just thinking, oh, I got to pay off this fucking credit debt. You know, it must be agonizing. So I did not want to do that. I want to make stuff that costs me nothing. A lot of people would say, well, if you're not going to put money into your piece, no one's going to put money in. Which exactly yeah. so. Which means that ultimately, as you're saying, there's it's it's a it's a, a low bar of entry, but also low expectation. So, at the end of the day, though, you're still doing a feature film's worth of work. So, what are you getting from yeah. that? What what is that? Is that is that flexing muscle? Is that is that just feeling good creating? What does that do for you? Well, it's passing time constructively, I think, because there's something that you're actually uh, working towards that will be finished at some point. I guess it's a sense of accomplishment. Um, it's an improvement of skills because from when I started in January 2018, uh, I, I shot the first one then. And it was out of frustration because the Mouth Congress movie took me two and a half years to edit. We did four or five completely different edits that were not suitable before we found the movie. And I got so frustrated with all that editing. I thought, I got to shoot something else. I got to work on something else. And it became the, 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 the diversion that paid off, right? I mean, yeah, I'd love for them to make money. But again, I can't see how. So uh, I'm proud of them. And I, like I said, that's that sense of accomplishment. Um, look, I did it. You know, that sort of thing. I used to be really hard on projects that... I was seeing the you know Canadian films, let's say, or Canadian television, and I, I thought, oh man, this is this is no good, you know, and I couldn't I couldn't enjoy any part of it because I, I would just say, oh no, it's it's not it's not excellent like some of the stuff I was seeing out of the states or whatever else. And uh, as I got into the business that I got and had had my experiences trying to get stuff made, I realized how bloody hard it is to get anything made, and how it's incredibly impressive that somebody got something made, and even if it is less than perfect, they didn't set out to make something bad. They set out to make something excellent. Everyone does. That's actually the MO of everybody that creates something. You set it, you, you put a canvas in front of you and a bunch of paints and you're going to try and paint a good painting. You know, chances are you're not going to. I mean, more likely than not, you're going to make an, an average or an adequate painting. And certainly when you get more people involved, like in a film, your chances of making something average or just adequate or even bad, they become exponentially higher. So I'm just impressed that half the time when someone can get something made and out the door. I agree totally, uh, which is why I'm never harsh in my criticisms, even with something I think is terrible, because I know there's no singular author for the terribleness. <laughs> Sometimes the script that you start off with might be really good, but then a series of compromises made by the producers uh, ruin it, quite simply. That happens more often than not. Um, I always say trust the creative team, but 
rarely does it happen. You know, I mean, kids in the hall were so lucky and we were an anomaly in that uh, Lauren Michaels set up a show that gave them virtually, I would say, 80, 85% autonomy. We're, we're still having to go within the boundaries of what a, net, a network is, ex, finds acceptable to show. Um, but for the most part, we ignored the notes that we didn't like and made the show that we wanted to make. That just never happened again. Yeah, all these years later, we've been effectively waiting for the next Kids in the Hall. We've certainly seen some really funny people come along, some good troops and some people with a lot of promise. But it's it's that autonomy that they had. It's that it's that ability to uh, to not take every note and not have it rammed down their throats that made them different and made them cut through. Sure. It happened sometimes, I think, with Citizen Kane. Uh, Orson Welles had a sweetheart deal with RKO, and he had a producer who protected him all the way through, made sure he had the best collaborators. And the movie, even as they were shooting it, was controversial, and it was, we got to shut this down because Hearst knew it was about him. And uh, they made it anyway, and they made it right, and he, Orson never had that again. You know, So these things do happen. And when they do happen, they, they turn out for very great work, which is not to say that all great work happens this way. Sometimes, again, sometimes it's a terrible script that really talented people find ways to improve, like Casablanca being a famous example of a script that was being written while they were shooting it. Everyone, everyone on set thinking, this is a disaster, it's a bomb. And then it goes on to win Best Picture, becomes incredibly famous. They were actually all surprised by, not by its outcome. I think by the end, they knew they had a good movie, but by its success, because the whole time they're hearing how it's a flop. Mm -hmm. So you just don't know how anything's going to turn out. You really don't. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's uh, looking to start off in comedy, get into the writing game? (laughs) (laughs) Well, grow a thick skin because you're going to need it. The trouble with, with writing and with comedy in particular is how much of your ego is attached to the final product. You put it all on the line and nothing's worse than when you write something you think is great and you read it to your friends in the reader's room and they're not laughing and you think, fuck, I know this is good, but why don't they get it? You know, that sort of thing. But there's a reason why they're not getting it and it's hard to see. So you have to have a thick skin. You also have to give up uh, any kind of uh, singular ownership, especially with television writing. It's always done in groups. There might be one name on the like a, a written by so-and-so, but you can be sure that every other writer on the show had a, a crack at that script. So you really have to let it go. You, if a good idea doesn't work, let it go right away. You cannot get caught up in those sort of things. Uh, you have to move forward, and at a certain point, if you're not making money, it's you got to get out of the business <laughs> because it will kill you. So, where can people find out a little bit more about you, Paul? Um, I have a Facebook page. If people want to look it up, it's not that interesting. I don't have a big social media presence. I, I always say Twitter equals suicide, right? <laughs> I mean, there's the Lana Del Rey thing that just happened a few days ago. Don't tweet. <laughs> Just don't tweet. That's because there's no good, no good can come of it. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. Thanks a lot. 
Subscribe to Making a Living Show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow along at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please share the show with someone you know. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.